this morning in Romans 12. So health-wise, uh, I have, I've had a pretty good week, so I'm very thankful for that. Thank you for praying for me. Um, with the drugs that I'm on, there, there is a cumulative effect to them. So I'm, I'm feeling that as I'm getting toward the end of treatments. And so uh, the fatigue has been a little bit more challenging this week than in previous weeks. Um, but overall, I've had a good week. I'm very much looking forward to this week because, uh, let's see, I'll take, um, I'll take the more treatment tonight and then tomorrow for the next seven days, I'm off. So I'm very excited about that. And so um, I can't wait to be off treatment. It feels like it's been forever since I've, since I've been off treatment. So I'm very much looking forward to these next seven days. I'm hoping to recover some. I may even sleep in tomorrow. We'll see if I can sleep, you know, comes and goes. So we'll see what happens. If I can, I'm, I'll probably try to do that. Um, but I'm very excited about this week. Um, next Monday, I'll have both drugs. So a week from tomorrow, that's the plan at this point. So if you want to be praying for that in preparation, I would appreciate that. I'm really excited about this next week because uh, John Paul Watson and Carrie and the kids are coming in town. If you're new to us or just visiting us, he is our former associate pastor that we sent out last year, roughly March of 21, to plant a church. And so he's going to come back and be with us this next Lord's Day, and he's going to preach next Sunday and be with you all and talk about what he's doing because we support them. And so I'm very excited about seeing the Watsons and them being back in town. I miss him. I miss Carrie. I miss the kids. And so, uh, but I'm looking forward to them being here and worshiping with us. So that said about my health. Now let's look at Romans 12. So when we look in, when we start Romans 12 this week, you need to know that we've turned a corner in the book of Romans. Uh, we've spent a lot of time in 1 through 11, and now we're getting into 12 through 16. And they're two very distinct sections of the book. So if you're someone that likes to study the Bible and actually understand the whole book, then this is for you. So Chapter 12 turns the corner in which we're going to be talking together over the next number of weeks about gospel culture, all right? Now, that's something that should trigger in your mind a little bit, because you might know that as a church, we want to be a people that are gospel-centered, and that has two components. We think that we need to be teaching and preaching the gospel, and we also need to be cultivating a gospel culture. So two components of a gospel-centered church are teaching and culture, because every church has a culture, right? Something we can often overlook. But as followers of Christ, we need to have a culture that embodies the gospel. So we're going to be looking at that in chapters 12 through 16. And that means that everything in 12 through 16 is anchored in chapters 1 through 11. That's why Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 12, therefore... So in light of everything that's going on and everything that I've said in 1 through 11, live this way, 12 through 16. Matter of fact, this idea of gospel culture is really important to us so much that we hired Chad, our new pastor, so that he can help us work on gospel culture, so that we can, did you hear that? So that we can continue to grow in gospel culture, because this is much more of a trajectory of our lives. We'll never fully arrive, just so you know. But I will tell you this, heaven to come, it's all going to be about the gospel in Jesus. So whenever we can experience gospel culture in this life, it's just a foretaste of heaven. It's the practical outworking of everything that Jesus has done that we've learned about in 1 through 11. So listen to this as I read the first eight verses of Romans chapter 12. Remember, you can bank your entire life on these words. What I'm going to read to you is true. It comes from the very heart of God. Listen to this. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we're learning that it is a gift. Lord, we ask that you might help us to sit under your word and to let your word work in us. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would take truth and drive it deep into us, even the dark corners of our hearts, even the areas of our lives where we don't want truth to go. We thank you that you have all power. We thank you that you desire for the truth to go deep down. So we ask that you would give us deeper desire for your truth to change us. Help us, Holy Spirit, by encouraging us, by correcting us, by instructing us, by equipping us as we sit under your word to, for every good thing, equipping us for every good thing. And we know, Holy Spirit, that all this is possible only if you get us to Jesus. So we pray that you would make Christ irresistible to us afresh. We pray this, Jesus, in your name and for your glory. Amen. I want to tell you a story about Jenny's grandfather, a.k.a. Papa. Now, I may not get all the details right. Jenny doesn't know I'm going to tell this story, so I'm sure I'll get corrected afterwards. But this is how I remember it. Jenny's Papa was a dear, dear man. I would say in his late 70s, maybe around 80, he decided that he didn't want his big refrigerator in his little barn in the backyard. So he decided that he was going to move the refrigerator. So he got Grandmommy to help him and his son, Johnny, and he loaded this refrigerator onto the back of his pickup truck because he wanted to drive from this little storage unit in the back of his house around somewhere else to put the refrigerator somewhere else. So he loaded this thing in the back of his pickup truck. Did I mention he's in his late 70s, about 80? That's important. So he decided, being the man that he is, that once the refrigerator was on the back of the pickup truck, he was going to stay in the back of the pickup truck while the pickup truck was moving, going to its next destination. Well, as the truck started moving, he lost his balance and he fell out of the truck. And you can imagine that Johnny and his wife were scared to death. 
So they stop the truck and they run out and there's Papa lying on the ground, face up, basically motionless. And they said to him, Papa, are you okay? Now this is gonna, this is gonna, this is gonna challenge your Southern culture here. We'll see if you can kind of connect with this. And this is what he said, are you okay? This was his response. Yep, just take an inventory. <laughs> In other words, he was making sure he was okay. And everything was functioning and working. I want you to know that Romans 12, Paul wants us to take inventory. He wants us to think about, are we okay spiritually? He wants us to do this individually. So as we read these eight verses, know that Paul is saying, hey, it's time to take inventory because we're going to be talking about this idea of gospel culture. And if you need a quick definition of culture and gospel culture, let me give it to you. Gospel culture is a place where good things happen to bad people because that's what the gospel message is, is that God saves bad people. So we ought to have a culture in which good things can happen to bad people. So Paul wants us to take inventory because he wants us to check and see if our hearts are beating toward a gospel culture. So that means he wants you to take inventory individually. He wants us to take inventory collectively to see if the rhythm of our heart is beating toward a gospel culture. Because every one of you in this room, no matter how old or how young you are, you are producing some type of culture. You are contributing to some type of environment. So Paul wants to see if that culture is based on the gospel. And if you're interested in promoting a gospel culture. So we got two stops this morning in thinking about gospel culture in these first eight verses. Our first stop is this. Death is life. If you want to know if your heart is resonating with gospel culture, if you're promoting a gospel culture, here's one way. Do you have a heartbeat that indicates death is life? It's the first three verses. The second stop on our journey will be this. Life is for others. Verses four through eight. So we're seeing if you individually and us collectively are living in such a way that we are promoting that death is life and life is for others. You got it? Clear about where we're going? Make sense to you in your mind? Well, let me try to show it to you. When you read verse 1, remember we're thinking about death is life here. When you read verse 1, can't you just sense Paul's love for the church and love for us? I mean, he, he, he writes to us and he, and he could command us to do something, but yet when you look at verse one, what Paul says, brothers and sisters, literally in the original, brothers and sisters, that means all of us in the church. He's like, I make an appeal to you. He's urging something. He really cares about the church. And so he wants to appeal to us. And he says, in light of everything that we've talked about in the first 11 chapters, in light of everything that we've talked about, even this idea of worship at the end of chapter 11. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to present all that you are as a living sacrifice. It's kind of a paradox, isn't it? What, 
a living sacrifice? Doesn't make much sense instinctively, does it? You see, Paul can say and urge us to live as if death is actually life because Jesus died a sacrificial death so that we who have received a sacrificial death might live a sacrificial life. You get it? And he could come down and drop the hammer and say, I'm commanding you. But no, he's appealing. He's urging us. He's saying a lot of everything that you've heard about Jesus. Do you see that death is actually life? That the way to find your life is to die to yourself and receive someone else's death on your behalf? You see, to live a life in which we are constantly sacrificing, in which we are dying to ourselves, means that we're living our total life for God. By the way, this is always gonna be imperfect. That's why we have to continue to die to ourselves, continue to receive the work of Christ in order to live in light of what he has done. So, what it means to live a life in which we are offering our lives, our bodies, all that we are as a living sacrifice, is to mean this. That because of what Jesus has done, we wanna follow God's word and we'll receive anything that he sends our way. That's what it means to live a life of living sacrifice. That whatever God says is what we want to think, what we want to do. And whatever, whatever comes into our lives, we receive from him. Knowing that he has a purpose for that. In other words, we're not living a life of chasing something. We're living a life in which we are receiving from God. And more than that, we actually realize that everything in life and through everything in life, God is pursuing us, even with goodness and mercy, all of our days, even through hard things. Which is why Paul connects this idea of living sacrifice with the idea of this is your spiritual worship. See that in verse 1? Chapter 11 ends with this explosion of praise to God, and now Paul makes it personal. Here's what it means for you to worship on a daily basis. It means that you live as if death is actually life. That is your spiritual service, or literally your reasonable worship. It means that to live a sacrificial life means that it's not something that's robotic, it's not something that's mechanical, it's something that's rational, it's reasonable. That means, to put it perhaps, at least this was most helpful to me, it means that you live a thoughtful life. That you're bringing God and what he says into all of your decisions into all of the machinations of your life and all the events of your life so that you're thinking about God. Dave's thinking about God as he goes through everything. So he's being thoughtful, not just reactionary, not just like a robot, mechanical, no. So that we are bringing God into our lives and thinking about what's going on 
That's worship. That's how we worship God every day, even in your jobs. Yes, especially in your jobs. You're thinking about God. Now, when you read the first three verses, not only does Paul make this appeal to us to live in a certain way because of what Christ has done, but he lays out for us, we'll say, a couple distractions, two distractions to living as if death is actually life. Here are the distractions, worldliness and pride. You know, he says, don't be conformed to this world. In other words, here's a distraction from living a life of sacrifice, worldliness. See, here's what worldliness is. Worldliness is living as if you belong to you. The essence of worldliness is, I know what's best for me. So nothing from the outside really gets in unless it agrees with me. Worldliness is I know what's best for me, I belong to me, I make my own decisions, I do everything for me. So as long as you're in agreement with me, I'm fine. But if you disagree with me, I'm sorry, but this is about me. And I'm going to do me, and you can do you. That is a distraction from living a sacrificial life. Thinking that you belong to yourself. Dave thinks that he belongs to himself. That he knows what's best for himself. You see, living that way is not bringing the gospel into our lives. It's actually a hindrance to it. Because if our lives are supposed to be lived as a living sacrifice, then we have to die to ourselves in order to find life. But it's not just worldliness that's a distraction. It's also pride. Do you notice verse 3? He's appealing to us, brothers and sisters, don't think more highly of yourself than you should. Then he even adds, be sober in your assessment of yourself. Do you see that? Here's the second distraction for your life being a living sacrifice to God. It's not only worldliness and living for self, but it's pride. And you might have guessed it. There are a couple ways that we live prideful lives. One way is this. We actually have a higher view of ourselves than we should. So we think of ourselves more highly than we should. We think of ourselves as better than we should. We think of ourselves as smarter than we should. We think of ourselves as more gifted than we should. And therefore, we put ourselves in positions where we don't belong. Because we have too high a view of ourselves. And the other way is to think too low of yourself. That's also evidence of pride. In other words, if you think too low of yourself, then you're not really taking God seriously in what he says about you. In other words, it's also a failure to bring the gospel into your life and to live by the gospel. Let me explain. You see, the message of Jesus both humbles and gives you confidence. So those of you that have a sense in which you have a high view of yourself, too high a view of yourself, it probably means that you have a really hard time admitting you're wrong 
It probably means you have a really hard time working with other people. It probably means you have a really hard time submitting to any type of authority at all. It probably means just to say it again, to get it down deep into you, look at your life. Do you have a hard time admitting that you're wrong? If you do, it probably means you have a really high view of yourself. And you see, the gospel humbles you. It tells you that there was a man named Jesus who's the God-man. And he actually had to die for you. That no matter how high you think of yourself, Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect man, had to die for you. He took hell for people like you and me. To have such a high view of ourselves, we think we're so good, inject ourselves in places we don't belong. Christ had to die for you. And for those of you that think too low of yourself, the gospel gives you confidence. Because when Jesus died, he died for you. He knows your name. His death was specific for you. That when he was on the cross, he was thinking about your name and what he was going to accomplish for you to raise you up and to bring you to God so that God would look at you as low as you think of yourself and you would know because of Jesus that God looks at you as his own child. And that should fill you with confidence and fill you with joy and hope. Because you see, if you have such a low view of yourself, what it probably means is you think that you can withdraw from everything. And it probably means that you don't insert yourself in places that you actually belong, where you should be. Because you just think so poorly of yourself. And God says that's pride too. See, those are distractions from living a life of sacrifice, worldliness, and pride. But do you see what Paul also says about what motivates us to live? What motivates us to live a life of sacrifice, to be a living sacrifice for God? Well, let's start here. What is it that motivates you to do a lot of things? I know we don't often like to sit down and reflect and think about our motives, but if you would, do that. What is it that motivates you? My guess is there are all kinds of answers. Maybe what motivates you in your life is you like experiencing new things. So you get real excited about the, the, the possibility of doing something new. So as long as it's new, you really want to do that. So your life is actually driven by experiencing new things. That's what motivates you. So it'd be really hard to get you to do something that isn't new. Because it's boring. Because you can always try to do something new. Maybe what motivates you is money. Therefore, you'll do whatever you can for that money. Whatever it is. Saving it. Not spending it, putting it over here, putting it over there, buying this, buying that. So you work to actually just spend money. Money motivates you. Maybe it's guilt. My hunch is most of us are motivated a lot of the time by guilt. So unless someone presses in on guilt, unless we feel a sense of guilt, we, 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 we won't do much. But if someone presses that guilt button, boom, I'm going. Or fear. You're motivated by fear? 
something maybe new, something you're not familiar with, something outside your comfort zone, and you just can't, you just can't do it because it's, it's fear. Maybe it's the hope for love. Maybe deep down you have this deep down desire to be loved, and so that's what motivates you. So anytime you can do something where this person may love you, you think, yes, immediately, I got to do that. Because if I do that, then this person will love me. So what's motivating you is actually that desire for love of that person. What is it that motivates you? Think about it. Because there are all kinds of other answers that we could go through. But what Paul says here that should motivate us What does he say? I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God. Do you know what should dominate our motivational lives? God's mercy. Not fear, not guilt, not money, not something new, not being right, not being in control, but mercy. Mercy. He even connects that idea with renewing your mind. Because what in the world should we we be renewing our minds with? The mercy of God in Christ. You see, it's so easy for us to be motivated by deficit. It's what you have to deal with all the time in your jobs. It's what you have to deal with all the time in your relationships. Well, I'm not what I should be, so I'm motivated to do more, be more, right? But the gospel says, no, 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 no. You have everything in Christ. We should be motivated from the fullness of Christ, a.k.a. from his mercy. Because God is merciful for us, that should motivate us to present ourselves, all that we are to God, as a living sacrifice. In other words, you got to bring that gospel into your life again. This is Paul saying, based on everything I've said, we need to do this. So bring chapters 1 through 11 into 12 through 16. In other words, this is another layer of bringing the gospel into your life and living by the gospel. So if you have a super high view of yourself that's not in line with the word of God, here's how you bring the gospel into your life with mercy. If you have a super high view of yourself, Let me ask you, where do you need God's mercy? You don't have to answer out loud. Just sit with that. Really. Where do you need his mercy? Specifically, where do you need it at work? Where do you need it at home? Where do you need God's mercy? Because my hunch is, If you have a really high view of yourself, it's going to be really hard for you to say, I need God's mercy here in my life. Because you're living as if you don't really need it. You have a lot of confidence in yourself. And without being overly pessimistic, just let me go ahead and tell you, the day is probably coming in which you'll be at the end of yourself. And when that comes, when that day comes, It will be an act of severe mercy of God, helping you see where you really need his mercy. And it may be the first time in your life where you've ever experienced that. Let me tell you, it's a gift. 
as hard as it will be, it is a gift. Because it may be the first time in your life in which you'll need to say, I need God's mercy right here. Because I can't change it. I can't fix it. I can't control it. I'm at the end of myself. I got nothing. For those of you that think low of yourself, bringing God's mercy into your life, are you just using God's mercy to excuse everything about everything you don't want to do? If you have a really low view of yourself, do you just use God's mercy to just do whatever you really want? Meaning not put yourself in places where you should, not do what you know you should do. Just excuse everything because of God's mercy. Friends, bring the mercy of God into your life and let that motivate you Let it fight against your pride and your worldliness. Well, that leads us to verses four through eight in our second stop on our journey. Death is life and life is for others. Look at verse four. Notice how Paul describes the church. He uses the image of a body. He says the church is like a body. And Paul does that so that he can identify for us and highlight for us that their individuality is an aspect of the body and there's a collectiveness to it so that we have individual parts of our body and then collectively it makes up the whole thing. So he wants us to think about how do we function individually and then collectively how do we work together to do things. So he uses this amazing, brilliant idea of the body. He talks about it in another book in Corinthians, a book he wrote earlier than Romans. He flushes out things even more. But he wants us to realize that we each have our own individual functions, but yet we're supposed to be connected to everybody else and living out together so that the whole body is functioning together, individually and collectively, so that we're doing things together, so that there's a gospel culture where we're mutually dying to ourselves, collectively dying to ourselves, serving one another for the good of where we live. So then Paul lays out these gifts. Do you notice them in verses six through eight? He gives us seven of them. And I may not remember them all, so if you're looking, I may ask you to help me, all right? So the first one he lays out is prophecy, isn't it? We're gonna cover these quickly, and there's a reason for that. I'll explain it. He gives us seven gifts. Again, he's wanting us to take inventory. He's wanting us to think about, is the heartbeat of our life, is the rhythm of our heart drawn to dying, living sacrificially? And and, and there's something going on in our heart in which we want to live for other people, not just self? Well, what that can look like is this. There are these gifts that God's given to the church. First one he mentions is prophecy. This seems to be The idea that someone is really good at taking the truth and applying it to contemporary in the contemporary world. That's what it seems to mean. That can be done formally. That can be done informally. As a matter of fact, it has a formal function and it has an informal function. 
But it's God's gift to the church is that you know the truth and you're able to take that into the contemporary world and understand the world. And that's why he says, for those that prophesy, let it be according to faith. It's actually the faith. It's actually as if to say, this is someone that knows the faith that has been delivered to God's church and based upon what has been delivered, the body of truth, someone can take that truth and say, oh, this is what it means for where we live in our day and time. Then what's the next one? Ministry, is that right? Service, what's the word? Service, yeah, this is the idea of, this is the idea of actually the deacon. This is the idea of, is your heart drawn to those who are in need? Is your heart drawn to those who are marginalized? Is your heart drawn to those who are weak? Is your heart drawn to those who are poor? Is your heart drawn to those who are in desperate need? that has a formal function in the office of deacon and has an informal function in the life of the church. So it's actually saying, are you drawn to people that have needs? Do you see someone that has a need and you go to it? Because your heart is drawn to that. What's the next one? Teaching? What Paul's describing here is someone that's not so good at being practical, but someone who's really good at deciphering truth from error. It's not so much that they get all into practical stuff, but it's in theory, intellectually, it's, it's laying out this is true and this is not true. And let me make, make that abundantly clear. Anybody ever had a good teacher before? They were able to express to you what was true and you could see how it related to everything. You're like, whoa, I hadn't seen that before. That's what he's talking about. That's done in formal situations and informal situations. Are we the kind of people that like to talk about truth? Are we the kind of people that are growing in our ability to understand what is true and what is not true? Whether you have some degree or some education or not, it doesn't matter. What's the next one? Exhortation? I know that's a word that we don't like because it sounds like confrontational. And there's an element of confrontation to it, but it's actually this. It's where we get the idea of counseling. It's where we get the idea of coming alongside other people. Do you sense some overlap in these words? This is for those of you that love to be with people. Don't hear that as type A. Don't hear that as extrovert. Just hear that as you like being around people, sometimes somewhere. And in being with people and coming alongside of people, it means that you have the disposition where you're not coming to them as if you're the teacher, they're the student, listen to me. Not that. This is the kind when you watch what's going on in the church, watch what's going on out there, you can see if someone is hiding in the corner. You can tell if someone is being left out. And you love to come alongside. Hey, how you doing? You're just a welcoming person. Your disposition is to open up who you are to them over time, slowly, just because you care. And it does contain the element of counseling. It does contain the element of giving advice and help, but it's done from a disposition in which you're walking alongside by side with the person. What's the next one? Generosity. Yes. 
God has blessed his church with people who have resources. That is a gift. And God says here, for those of you that have the gift of giving or contributing, do it with, what is it? What's that? Sorry, too many people. I have to read it. Generosity, which really means simplicity and singleness of focus. As if to say, if the Lord has blessed you with resources, do you have something at work in you in which you earn things by what you do, but you know that they all belong to God, so you're interested in investing in spiritual things because you know you can't take anything with you. But what you invest in God's kingdom will never go away. So you have this heart because God has blessed you with resources that you want to give and to give generously because you believe in the kingdom. And that's more important to you than anything else. And God has blessed you and you see it and you feel it and you know it. And what you can do for the kingdom, not a lot of other people can. But you've been gifted to the church to give because you can. What's the next one? Person who leads? Yes, this is talking about you're the type of person that people like to follow. You just naturally have this personality that people like you. They come up to you. They'll follow you. Don't Don't think of it as a dictator. Don't think of it in that way. It's just you have that kind of character that people see and observe and like, wow, this, this is someone that I like to be around. This is someone that I would listen to and I trust their advice and their opinion. Is that you? Because that can happen whether you are leading the nursery or whether you are serving in an official formal capacity of being a shepherd of the church. Do people follow you? That's not saying do you command people saying, do people like to be around you? And they listen to what you say. And finally, mercy. Whoever's been given the gift of mercy, do it with cheerfulness. Almost every scholar I read said, even especially those who are pastors, they all said, you know, there's nothing like having a gift to give someone and doing it with a grudge. This is saying that you are someone that loves to go to those who are in need and love to give and it brings such joy to your heart to give and you are able to give with such joy because you just like giving. You just like seeing someone in need and you just like to say, here, this brings me great joy to give to you and to do this for you. No strings attached, just to give. You see, these words have formal and informal applications. They're meant for everyone in the church. They're meant for us to take inventory and think about, am I living for others? Am I using the gifts? Do I have too low a view of myself? Do I have too high a view of myself? Do I see that because of what Christ has done, I need to offer myself as a living sacrifice? You see, beloved, in the world, God doesn't so much have a mission for his people as a people 
for his mission. He wants us to be a people that are growing in all of these things. These aren't job descriptions. These are characteristics. These are priorities. These are habits. These are realities that are be able to be observed and seen in the life of the church that are able to be seen in the life of God's people. This is what it means to see a gospel culture happen. In other words, what God is saying is that we're to be a people who enjoy being together and enjoy coming alongside one another in the gospel. And because we're coming alongside one another in the gospel, it means that we're willing to follow servant leaders in the ministry of word and mercy. And it means because of that, what's being produced in us is cheerfulness and diligence and, and joy and focus and intentionality and thoughtfulness and mercy. It actually means that as we are coming alongside one another and joy and cheerfulness and all these things are growing, it means that we are learning to be motivated by mercy together and that we're fighting against pride and worldliness together. And it means that because we're growing in these ways, it overflows out of us to where we live and the common good of where we live. So that we're fulfilling our callings every day, seeing these gifts develop in our lives. Because here's the reality. We're really bad people. And the good thing has happened to us, salvation. Because the worst thing, the cross, happened to the best person, Jesus. And that produces in us a desire to see more good things happen to more bad people. You get it? We're really bad people where the good thing has happened to us. Salvation. Because the worst thing, the cross, has happened to the best person, Jesus. And that produces in us a desire for more good things to happen to more bad people. And all of that is embodied as we come to the table. Do you remember the night in which Jesus was betrayed? Do you remember that night?